You're about to listen to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders and for coders about all aspects of life as a developer. I'm Will, the curmudgeonly experienced developer. And I'm Beach, the optimistic newbie developer. Welcome to another episode of the Complete Developer Podcast. Before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Uh, not all that much, to be 100% honest. I've had a, uh, well, I'll say I've had a relaxing week. It's been a bunch of little stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know that you and I started a project here fairly recently, and we've uh, we've been kind of pair programming on that. I've been learning a lot from that. It's been really great. Yeah, and it's... it's well, Except for that one day where I was sick, but... Yeah, and you know we still have to go over that. You know, but it's it's kind of been interesting because I'm I'm halfway doing a curriculum, so like I'm intentionally making mistakes as we go through, and then we go back and we fix them. But then, of course, there's always the fun of oh hey, I I found this weird bug in in Hibernate. <laughs> those are those are interesting because you you point out the uh, the mistakes that you don't make on purpose. Yeah, like when when. We found a, a bug, and it took like an hour to fix it. It was it was closer to two or nine, two and a half, I think, wasn't it? Because it was it was where it was not returning data because we didn't have it didn't have the correct SQL dialect, and it was one of those things where I'm I'm very anal retentive, and I knew that if I did not come up with an answer that night, I would be thinking about it at three o'clock in the morning when I woke up. I'm like that too, um... but uh, you know, like I said, I haven't had a whole lot of. Uh, you know, particularly nasty things. I mean, hey, uh, tell us how how did the um, JavaScript go? You talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Which JavaScript? The the obfuscated JavaScript that you were going to get to see the source code on. Yeah, the the obfuscated JavaScript was with a HTML control, an HTML editor control that we were using, and we actually threw that control out. I'm in the process of ripping all that crap out. <laughs> nice. Um, but then, when you said obfuscated JavaScript, I had to think because the control that we're using to replace it also has obfuscated JavaScript, but they also don't have um, the nasty bugs, and so I'm not having to get into it. Um, okay, good. Quite as much. I mean, there's been a little bit of that, and there's there's always going to be a little bit. JavaScript is always open source, but sometimes you can't read the source. Yeah, I did did kind of have a little bit of a slugging match with it today, and I'm hoping that the uh, the folks at the control vendor can help me out. Um, I've already sent them a bug request because uh, bug request a bug report. You don't request bugs. Um, I've already sent them a I sent them a bug report because we have something in there that is periodically deciding to uh, you know just give up and close a socket. You told me about that earlier. Yeah, you know it's just like hey, you know what. Here's here's a load of data I want you to process, and something in the middle goes, you know, socket denied about halfway through, and it just flips out, and, and I don't know if it's something in the environment. I I can't get any kind of uh, stack trace on it. All I see is the event log entry and failure at the other end. So it's it's probably something stupid. It's probably some little configuration thing. You know, I just don't know. So I've uh, you know I've been dealing with that, but it was pretty it was quick quickly apparent, you know, within like 20 minutes that, yeah, this isn't something I can troubleshoot effectively because mm-hmm. I don't have the source. So how about you? Well, I have really been enjoying uh, working with Linux uh, the last few weeks. Um, it's sped up a lot of processes because I don't have a lot of stuff running in the background. 
has caused some other issues, like uh, you and I were fighting with it on getting me hooked into the uh, RVPN, and I still haven't gotten that working. Like I, I did everything that we talked about, and it's still, it'll connect, but it won't stay connected. It's like it connects and then says, oh, there's nothing here, so just connect. Yeah. Uh, v- VPNs are pretty awful anyway a lot of times. I mean, this is why I don't get into DevOps, because no. those people have to deal with that crap all the time, and I'm just not interested. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been doing that. Uh, you talked about us pair programming. Um, been With that, we've been doing a lot of stuff with, in Hibernate, and uh, so I've been doing some studying up on that. Really about it. We had the... Uh, yeah, we had the 5K run. Uh, yeah, we, we had walk. the... This last weekend. Well, your wife ran. Yeah, my wife ran, and I don't—I actually don't remember what her time was. It was something. It, it, it was above what I or she was going faster than I expected. You know, moved up from where she had been before. Of course, you know, we were—you know—I I had my seven-year-old with me, so I couldn't couldn't run very well. And then uh, you, know, you had your dog. Yeah, I brought I brought my dog, which I'm very proud of him. He was so well behaved. He really was. He's better behaved than my daughter. I will say this about my dog, though. Like, after the walk, I stopped to talk to to some friends. And uh, then as we were leaving, this one family was kind of crossing the road that we were walking down. Um, they had a little kid, probably a year and a half, not probably not even two years old. And he wanted to pet the dog. And so I told my dog, sit. And he sat down and he let the little kid just walk up and pet him. And I was so proud of him for that. Yeah, my dog would have. Not that wouldn't have gone well. Or at least my my younger dog, the older mm-hmm. dog, wouldn't have cared. But then she wouldn't have been out there walking either. So uh, the the walk went well. I think uh, we raised our team raised a pretty good amount of money. Uh, you can see some of the pictures if you go to our Facebook. Um, I went back home and slept for several hours, and uh, then got up and played Kerbal for a long time. That uh, game eats your time. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's better than what I did. I went to war against the wasps on my back patio. You know, there's like a thousand red wasps back there, mm-hmm. or close to it. I mean, it's probably not really a thousand. It's probably like seven or eight hundred. I had yeah. to I had to get them up with the shop back. I used four I used four cans of wasp spray. It sounded like it was raining. All these wasps decided, "Hey, Will's patio is where we want to go to die," and they did. Well, I um. I think I started playing around 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and uh, at 2 in the morning, realized I was tired. Yep. I sat there and played it all night long, and it does. It just eats up your time because you get in there and you just want to keep doing more, and it's fun. Speaking of time, we need to kind of move on, so let's go ahead and play the music. For this week in IOTs, I want to tell you guys what happened. So I have my Raspberry Pi. It's a really cool setup at home where I've got my laptop and an extra screen and then I've got a little small digital TV that I've got the Raspberry Pi plugged into, two keyboards and two mice, and <laughs> wow, it's it's fun. It's a fun little setup. So I'm on the Raspberry Pi. That's probably like three weeks ago. 
no, four weeks ago now, three weeks last week, four weeks ago now, uh, I started installing different things. I've been spending a lot of time on it. I just put a lot of stuff on there and kind of filled up the little 8 gigabyte card that came with it. So it had the noobs Raspbian on there. And that did not allow me to adjust the partition. Yep. So it was full. I could get in and I could run anything I wanted from the command line, but I could not get into the GUI. What uh, what version of Linux is, or what uh, distro of Linux is that based on? It's based on the, the Debian. Debian. So you could have probably done a sudo apt-get install gparked, which is the the gnome partition tool. I probably resized it. It's no, I did. It didn't work. It didn't work? No. Oh, man. That's what I was saying. The noobs, it's... Guys, if you guys are brand spanking new to Linux, noobs for the Raspberry Pi is great. Because it handles so much stuff that you don't have... that you would have to do on your own. And it was great for me very first starting out. But as I kind of filled the disk, <laughs> it became a problem. So I was having trouble removing stuff, and even after I removed it, it still said disk was full. But uh, yeah, I spent uh, about three weeks, probably five or six hours a week. I mean, I didn't spend a whole lot of time because I was busy with other things, but I put some time into it and just fought it and fought it and fought it. And um, usually what I would do is I would get on, I would try something just like Will had said, and it wouldn't work. I'd get frustrated, and I'd just use the command line to do what I wanted to do anyways. Uh, that's, that's the nice thing about it is I could still use the command line, and uh, I could still get into Scratch. So... Eventually, I just got fed up enough with it that I said, you know what, forget this. I'm just going to completely reinstall, and I'm not going to do the noobs. I'm just going to do the Raspbian, uh, which it's, the noobs is Raspbian, but it's like... Uh, it's softened up. Yeah, exactly. So I did. I reinstalled with the Raspbian, and uh, it's worked fine ever since. Um, cool. This episode is titled, The Customer is Not Always Right. And we're going to start discussing this from a business perspective, which you'll find bleeds over a lot into the software development perspective, because honestly, even in software development, we're still trying to serve a customer base. It's just a little bit, there's a layer of abstraction in most cases. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, I'll be honest, I wrote the show notes for this, and when I started looking up the topic, um, you guys know we do a lot of research, and by research I mean Google. But uh, wear Google out. We do. But uh, when I was on there looking stuff up, basically, I found a ton of stuff specifically for business, but almost none for developers dealing with customers. Because we really don't directly deal with customers in our role. Well, we don't recognize that they're customers. Uh, there is that, too. What we've done is we've taken the plethora of information on how to deal with customers from a business perspective, pulled out the things that really apply to both business and development, and we're going to present that to you guys as the base for the episode. So to start off, everybody's heard the, the phrasing, the customer is always right. 
that was the base for the title of the episode and the base for a lot of the blogs that we found. And we're going to start off with the customer is not always right. And uh, some of the reasons why the attitude of the customer is always right are bad. From the employee standpoint, it makes employees unhappy. Um, it kind of puts them in an adversarial position against the customers and against management because management in that system is trained to always side with the customer. Right. And I think a lot of people have been in this situation. If you've ever worked retail, it's you know, that's the first thing you hear is the customer is always right. And you'll, you'll still see this in the development community a lot with, okay, the employer is always right. And yes and no, it's, it's not quite that simple. Yeah, you're right, and that's where a lot of this is coming from, is that may apply a lot of the time, but it's not a universal rule. And it can be frustrating for management, too, because they recognize that uh, even though money is the bottom line, it's not everything, and that some customers are just bad for business. Right. I mean, everybody's had the experience... I don't know, it, it sounds kind of stereotypical, but imagine a guy that's about maybe 5'1", five, 5'2", five, bald-headed, screaming at some sales clerk. His, you know, his head's starting to kind of turn red, and the red's going all the way back to his hairline, you know, getting angry. Everybody's seen that guy. Like, yeah. that guy lives in every town in this country, and we can all visualize him. Is that guy right? Well, no, he's not. And part of the thing here with, with talking about the customer always being right is that statement does not include time. The customer is always right at the end mm. because he's the customer and he's paying us money. So we have to make him right if he's wrong. <laughs> that's, that's a good attitude to take towards that policy. Right. It's, um. it's, it's, it, the customer is eventually right. It's sort of like a database being eventually consistent. That can apply in a lot of situations, but sometimes you just got to let customers go. Uh, some customers are bad for business. Uh, there was a lot of anecdotes in the material I read, and uh, one of my favorite came from the CEO of Southwest Airlines. Um, they kept getting complaints from a particular woman that uh, would fly their airline and then complain that they didn't have a first-class section and didn't serve meals and didn't have a seating chart and basically complain about all the things that made Southwest Southwest, the right. reason they were the way they were. Little bitty packages of peanuts. Yeah. And so it finally got to, to the point where it reached the CEO and he handled it very simply. He said, dear Mrs. So-and-so, we will miss your business. Yep. Love, Herb. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, you, you find, especially if you have a small business and you're doing uh, freelance work, you'll find that about 20% of your customers, you know, produce about 80% of your results. You'll yeah. also find that about 20% of your customers produce about 80% of your problems. It just goes right back to what we talked about last week with the 80-20 rule. Right. That yeah, plays I mean, into a lot of places. It's it's really kind of a universal uh, mathematical constant. I, I don't know if it's really a constant. It's more like a uh, statistical distribution 
yeah. thing. I'm I'm sure that somebody that's you know that's a math nerd is going to jump in and actually tell us you know what the statistical basis of that, which is which would be fascinating. I'd love to know, but yeah. It by does the way, if we do have anyone out there that that can do that for us, comment. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, or on the website. Uh, so you know, at some point. Um, when you have you know, when you have a bad customer, you you are able to fire a customer as a business. You can say, "Look, I'm I'm just not going to work with this guy. You know, that's not uh, you know that it doesn't pay enough. It's too many problems. You know, it's it's perfectly acceptable. Businesses actually will fire you if you're annoying enough. Even doctors can discharge patients from their service. Yeah, I mean they there's there's a lot of laws and rules around how to do it, but it's still possible. Yeah. And as as developers, we also have this power to some degree. I mean, when you're when you're inside of a business setting and you're told to work with somebody that's hard to work with, you you can go to management and go, look, I can't I can't work with this guy. Yeah. Now, you, there may be consequences for that, just as there are consequences for a business that fires too many of their customers because they're not willing to work with them. But it can be done. You're not trapped. It's like the idea that there's always a choice. Yeah, I mean. It may not be a good choice, but and it may have consequences you're not willing to deal with. The The repercussions of saying that to management may be worse than having to deal with that person. Right, and then leaving it alone can also be worse as well, right? I mean, yeah. if you choose not to decide, you've still made a choice. Exactly. Like exactly. the song says, right? So part of the uh, you know, discussion here is that you know, when you're working with customers... You, you need to try to bridge the gap between you know, what their expectations are and what you can actually provide. The customer is not always right, but the customer is never wrong. It has to do with the attitude that you don't want to be confrontational with the customer. You want to take them and, even if the problem is theirs, educate them. Well, correctness is a vector move them along it. And some ways to do this are to listen first and ask questions later. Yeah, and I've had, I've had this experience where you know, somebody will go, oh, this app is ugly and da-da-da-da and it doesn't work like I want. And, you know, they're, they're going off, mm-hmm. right? And then you find out that, oh, yeah, it doesn't work on, it doesn't work on mobile and there's one little stupid thing and you can fix it. But you think, you know, starting the conversation, you think everything is busted. You're completely wrong, mm-hmm. and until you until you listen to them and actually get what their complaint means and what the words they're using mean, because if you talk to four or five people trying to develop a product, and you say, "Okay, well, you know, what are your requirements?" They'll use completely different words, and you'll think they're talking about completely different things, and they're not. No, just like and, when we were talking about, uh, just in the industry, we have. A ton of words to mean the exact same thing. Or very close to the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so somebody, they may be talking about one thing and another person talking about another thing, and it ends up being the exact same thing that they're complaining or complimenting, even if they're saying good stuff. Um, another way to, uh, to apply this is to own up to your own mistakes. Um, but... Only your mistakes. Right. You don't want to be a sycophant. You don't want to be. Um, you don't want to be taking the blame for something that the uh, customer screwed up. 
this is the case in business environments as well. Part of the problem is, is it's just not honest. If you want a customer to be truthful with you, that somewhat has to start with you. And so when you're taking responsibility for stuff that you didn't break, you've already put the dishonesty in the relationship. Yeah, and also a lot of customers will appreciate it if you politely explain to them why what they are asking or what they're complaining about is because they are not using the product properly and then teach them how to. And we're going to get into this a little later on. I've actually had this experience from the customer side uh, where I was having a lot of issues uh, with with the way that I was using a product and I was complaining because like, oh, it's, it's hard to get this report out. And it turned out there was a way to actually save it until somebody actually listened to me. I had no idea. And yeah. I've been using the product for like three years. Wow. Yeah. It, that happens. Well, users are stupid, and at some point we're all users. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not really that users are stupid. It's that everybody is stupid at some point. You're, you're going to miss things that look obvious to other people. Well, we, we all have so. those those moments um, where we just don't notice it. Or three years of moments. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I didn't notice the big freaking button that was, you know, like... Four inches wide. I don't know how. The big obvious, yeah. easy button. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, I was pretty much doing everything completely backwards until somebody actually listened to me and goes, "What? What? Why are you doing it that way?" I had no idea. And okay. oh. the best way to to do this is to outline how you will make things right. Because what what they're ultimately doing when people complain is they're asking for help. Yeah. They may not recognize this, but if you take the attitude that a complaint is an ask for help, it's an opportunity. It, it becomes an opportunity at that point for you to be established as the go-to person. Well, one of the things, uh, one of the podcasts I listen to is for startups, uh, no. you know, particularly in the uh, tech space. And one of the things they talk about is how to find the software to develop. In other words, problems to be solved. And you know what one of the things that they tell you to do is? Elicit complaints from other people. Get them to complain about the software they're using. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Think about that for a minute. That complaint is potentially a multi-million dollar opportunity. You should be glad to be getting it. Yeah. Now, granted, it sucks hearing it, especially if it's about something that you built. Mm -hmm. But the fact remains that there's an opportunity to, to lock in that customer and make them very, very happy and you know, bring some more money in no. and potentially you, you'll, you'll find a lot of customers are very abrasive at first. And sometimes when you win those people over, you know, you've, you've got somebody on your team that's way better. Yeah. Sometimes you have a sociopath too, but most of the time, honestly, once, once you've proved yourself, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people really cut you a lot of slack and it's, it's way better. Exactly. Exactly. Now, We've been talking a lot from the business perspective, and you guys might be thinking, well, I'm a developer. What is this? Re- I don't deal with customers. What does this have to do with me? So let me ask you, who is the customer anyways? Yeah, For you as the developer, who is the customer? And that really is going to depend on your role in the company. Uh, so for example, are you a full-time employee, a long-term contractor, or contract to hire? Short-term contractor brought in just to fix a specific thing or to work on one product? Or are you out freelancing? And I know Will's got some experience with freelancing. Quite a bit at this point. No. 
and you'll a lot of times the customer is not really who you think it is, but there is always a customer. Um, if you're if you're exchanging value for value, somebody's paying. Yeah, and you're the one getting paid, and so it's it's important in this discussion to remember that the customer is not always right, but the customer is always the customer, and that's a, the person that you really need to identify. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on accounting departments a little bit here, um, but let's say that you're developing an app for accounting. Accounting might be your customer. It also might be the CFO. It may be the shareholders, but, you know, because it's a strategic initiative. But there's somebody out there whose interest is being served by the thing that you're developing, and that's the person that you have to treat as the customer and whose issues you need to get your head around. And that that brings us right to the next point, which is who are the customers within the company? This could be the designers. If you think of designers as bringing you a product that they want built, then they become the customer in that aspect. Another customer is production. Right. Like if you're working at a, a company that builds builds anything, mm-hmm. uh, the guys on the factory floor, you know, they're your customers. You got to make they're the ones you, whose lives you have to make easier. But the other side of that is is their managers and people at the chain from them are also their customers. You know, sometimes you do best by serving your customer's customer as well. So it's almost like you have to walk a tree. Yeah, and also. As we talked about last week, the sales team can be your customer. And we won't go into too much depth because we've already covered that pretty well. And those are those are the customers within your company. Other times, especially if you're working freelance, you're going to be du- working directly with the customer who's buying a product from you. So those are the main customers that we really deal with as developers. Um, so now we're going to talk about some of the issues that come up with with dealing with them and how the the customer is always right doesn't always apply, especially in what we do. And we'll start off with... Well, and, and bear in mind here, we're also going to apply the, the notion that the customer is eventually right because you get them there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's the customer is not always right, but the customer is never wrong. So first, we're going to talk about uh, when the customer, and this is really big with when your customer is a designer or brings a, a design to you to build, when they ask for the impossible. And I have a quote here uh, that says, In the web design industry, developers have gained an unfortunate stereotype of being grumpy, overly pragmatic naysayers, especially towards their designer counterparts. So my challenge to all of us as developers, especially those of us listening, especially those listening to the podcast, is guys, gals, let's beat the stereotype. Let's take a collaborative approach to working with the customer or the designer. And some ways to do this are to be on the team that comes up with the design. That's not always possible. Frequently not. Yeah. But if you can show your worth through some of the other things, then you may be able to work your way up onto that team. Um, another big thing is don't blame the designer or the customer for things that you know are just impossible to do. I have to take a slight exception to that because a designer who is building designs for the web should know the web. 
and should know that some things are not things that you can actually pull off. Of course, that's a, that list is getting shorter by the year. And sometimes, and we'll get, we will get into this a little bit later, what they're asking for isn't impossible. It's just it requires too much time. Uh, it goes against best practices. Or you guys remember Will talking about technical debt in a previous yeah. episode. It just creates too much technical debt to do what they're asking. Right. And I actually ran into some stuff like that today where, you know, if I'd been designing the page in question, you know, from the get go, no problem. Could totally do it, but because of the way that it was already built, mm-hmm. you know, what I had to do that should have been, you know, 30 seconds of work ended up being uh, 24 hours and counting. That's because, insane. yeah, it was, you know, it had, the code had a lot of hands in it. So sometimes, Sometimes you have to kind of work with the designer a little bit and go, okay, you know, we could do this if this was new, but we can't do it now and maintain, you know, keep it within the scope of the timeline. Yeah. And and, and that's, that's usually the way that you want to word that. A lot of times the designer will be like me. I know something's possible, so I'm going to go out and find out how to do it. But the designer, that's not their job. Their job is, I know this is possible, so I'm going to put it into my design because it really flows with this or it works well. But they don't realize, yes, it's possible, but it takes this much. Or it takes this much in your environment. And when you get it to the point where you're explaining to them what the cost of building this actually is, a lot of times they go, well, crud, I can just do it this very slightly different way and it's all good and it's it cuts the timeline and everybody's better well, off. Exactly. But when you don't start out adversarial, yeah. it typically works a lot better. When you take the attitude of listening to their idea and not immediately going, no, I can't do that, but saying, okay, what are you really trying to get here? Right. And listening to them. Almost together, as if you can look for a solution. Let me stroke my beard and say... It's almost like the way you would act if you were on the same team. You mean designers and developers are on the same team? I know. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. (laughs) Um, What Will has basically said is listen to what they have to say and what they're trying to do. And then take time to explain your reason. If it's a designer that knows code, which most do nowadays... You can talk to them in co- about it, but if not, explain it in layman's terms. Like, don't talk over their head if you know that. Yeah, for instance, if you're talking about browser compatibility, um, talk about electrical plugs, European plugs, and U.S. plugs. They don't work together. Okay, you yeah. you plug you know one into the other, bad things are going to happen. You you can use these examples. To explain what you're talking about. And by doing that, what you'll end up doing is setting yourself up as a resource for those designers. So when they have an idea that they know is possible, now they think, well, let me go ask him so I don't have to redesign this. Yeah, so I can build it in initially and not waste my time. If, mm-hmm. you, if you respect their time, that it becomes very valuable to them. Yeah. So another, you know, another thing that will come up is uh, scalability. A lot of times uh, designers will say, hey, this would be really cool if this app kept in constant contact with the server and you know, kept everything live and up to date. Well, they'd, 
you know, it's, it's not really their thing to think about, okay, what happens when we have a million users doing this? The server farm catches on fire. And so sometimes it's just it's simple explanation of going, okay, well, we can do this, but we're also going to have to re-architect. We're also going to have to split it out in multiple servers. Our hosting costs go up. You know, instead of it being, you know, $100 a month, now it's 2000 And so we have to figure out a way that we can do this maybe where it's not real time, where it's some kind of compromise between the two. And so you have to, some of it is explanatory and some of it is compromise. It's one of those two things more than likely. One of the things you really have to take into consideration um, to avoid conflict is if you think of it in terms of what is their role in the company versus yours. Yeah. With a designer, their role is to come up with really cool looking or neat ideas, innovative ideas, and bring them to you to build. Our jobs as developers is to be the pragmatic one, the practical one that says, okay, this is possible. We can do this. This is just not possible or this, this is what it's going to cost. And um, honestly, if all else fails, refer to management. You know, if, you're saying this is what it's going to cost, and they're saying we still want it, just push it off to management and say, hey, I'll do it, but this is the cost it's going to be. Yeah, and please, you know, when you do that, apologize for interrupting their solitaire game. (laughs) (laughs) Now, another thing that will come up, um, when you're dealing with production, so it's, it's a little bit different when you're dealing, for instance, with factory employees or people that are not necessarily technically savvy. Mm Mm-hmm. You have a little uh, different set of expectations, especially when they're under a lot of pressure. You know, for instance, a, a factory line. If something slows down that line, it really racks up the cost really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. um, you know, if you shut down a factory line, it's you're going to get canned. I would suggest that if you haven't worked in a factory setting, then go take a tour of one. A lot of places here in Tennessee you can take a tour of Nissan. Yeah. We did that as kids. I went to, I was up in Pennsylvania last year and y'all know I'm a big uh, Harley fan. I was in York, Pennsylvania and actually got a chance to tour the Harley factory there. And I could see exactly what Will's talking about. Whereas if, if something slowed up the line, that, didn't just slow up the people working in that part. It slowed up the entire production. Right. And then you think, okay, I have a thousand people working here and, you know, there's 800 people down the chain from whatever this slow spot is. You have 800 employees working at suboptimal levels. It's a similar thing to um, when you're dealing with, with software products that are involved in a uh, safety or security type situation. If, if it puts, if it creates a risk, with the substantial economic penalties that come out of that risk, there's no way. You don't have that leverage. You can't push those people around, so you've got to figure out some way to get going in the same direction as them. This really goes back to a matter of respect and taking the approach of let's work together to solve the problem rather than you're complaining and I'm arguing with you. Because that really doesn't accomplish anything, and... In the end, you're going to be forced to work towards a solution. Yeah, and if you're adversarial, what ends up happening is, is you you were adversarial and everybody's ticked off at you and you still have to work towards a solution with more barriers now. Exactly. That you built. 
the, another side of production is um, when you are working with a software company and you have system administrators. Yeah, and DevOps has gotten to be a big thing where they try to blend the two things, which I'm, I have very mixed feelings about that because my impression of what goes on in the server room is a little bit different because I'm, you know, I may maintain my own servers. I've maintained other people's servers and I would not like to do that on top of development. That Those are two really, really different industries. They, they really are. And um, I found this awesome blog post basically called vampires versus werewolves. And uh, I'm going to read you guys a couple of excerpts from it just because it's awesome, and you got to read the whole thing because uh, it's just—it's fascinating, and it explains exactly why. It explains exactly what Will is saying. Programmers are like vampires; they're frequently up all night, paler than death itself, and generally afraid to be exposed to the daylight. Oh yeah, and they tend to think of themselves, or at least their code, as immortal. System administrators are like werewolves. They look outwardly ordinary, but are incredibly strong, mostly invulnerable to stuff that would kill regular people, and prone to strange transformations during a moon or outage. When you're working with these sort of people, uh, especially the sysadmins that are keeping a running product running, um, the victories don't really happen when you're actually engaging with them. The victories happen before them. Exactly. So you have to prepare, and you, you you basically want to have all your ducks in a row, all the pieces they need to get it, and it just be smooth. That's really all these people want from you. And if you provide that, they love you. And if you don't, you are the cause of their headaches. Because when you're when it's three o'clock in the morning, and you're trying to roll out patches to ten different servers. And do a rolling thing, you know, where you're you're calling your hosting provider and say, "Hey, take this out of the, uh, you know, take this one server out of the load balancer, and you know, I'm going to fix this box and then put it back in the load balancing rotation. And then let's go to the next one." When you're doing that at three o'clock in the morning, you don't want any crap because you're probably still going to be coming in at ten the next yeah. day, and and so you know, being aware of what these people's constraints are really will help a lot. And being prepared in advance, you know, this is this is how you deal with this type of customer. In a way, it's kind of like working with designers, but the roles are reversed. Yeah, the the system administrators can be a great resource for you to produce better code because they can tell you what works, what doesn't, and how they fixed it. Yeah, and also, you know, be sure and instrument your stuff. Be sure to have logging. You know, all the all those little tools. Yeah. that nobody ever thinks about until they get to the end of the product and they try to slap it on. Mm-hmm. Like, that that should be in there from the beginning because you are trying to serve... You know, they're one of your customers. And, and you know, this is one of those things we that kind of feeds back into the whole development thing, right? Your your DevOps people are your customers. The people... Your users are your customers. Your users' managers are your customers. Your manager is your customer. Other developers six months from now are your customer as well. Right? You, you You've got to... It's, it's a multivariate optimization problem. You've got to keep all these people happy because the one that you uh, denigrate or you ignore is the one that's going to burn you. So Now, another group that comes into the mix, and we discussed this, is management and your sales team. 
we we hit on that a little bit uh, last week's episode. And um, what you kind of run into is the difference between that's not how I would have done it versus that's wrong and needs to be refactored, rewritten, or reassigned. And sometimes you don't know what they're asking. Sometimes they're just saying, hey, I, I, it's not the way I would have done it, but all right. And sometimes they're saying, that's not the way I would have done it, and you need to redo it. Yeah. Well, and it depends on who the customer is. Yes. If it it's another developer, you know, they're, the product that you are giving them is the code. Exactly. And so they're not happy with it. Whereas if it's management, the result, you know, the product that you're giving them is the results they get. If it's the customer, it's probably the user interface plus the results. With the management, it, I would think it has a lot to do with where your manager's background is. Because a manager with a coding background, they're more likely to mean it needs to be redone. There's a lot of times when they're a manager with coding background, they've been out for a while. And so if it's not the way that it was done in C, they're not happy with it. And that can be an interesting problem when you're doing modern object-oriented programming in a you know, scalable web environment. Yeah, I can, um, I can see that being an issue. And you can see it from the look on my face. I know that listeners can't see this. Um, I've had that experience. And that can be a little interesting to navigate because you don't want to insult them and go, yeah, we, we don't do it that way. You know, I don't churn my own butter. Yeah. And, and trying to put that in a way that's, that's non-offensive can be kind of tricky, especially for me. Okay, so that is a great example for this, this section, and I really like it. So let's say we're, we're in that. How did you deal with it? Let us know. Give us some, some good ideas for when that comes up. Um, well, in this particular case, um, I actually talked to several other developers, and so we kind of worked with the manager and started kind of showing the best practices as they were, I mean, you know, the guy was a sharp, sharp programmer, but he was old school. And that's great until you have to get into an environment where you're trying to scale and especially discussing things like um, how threading works in.net and some of those sort of things, you know, because he came from the C background, he was able to get away with a lot of stuff that we really couldn't. You know, the stuff he was doing was was much faster and it was less safe, but we didn't really have the constraint of needing that much system speed. We could put it on multiple servers and we're good. And that was that worked out to be cheaper than going, okay, let's over optimize this where it can run on one server. Because you know, bear in mind we've got load balancing anyway, so split it onto two servers. You know, because you're already paying for that, you have to. You have to keep the thing up. So it's, it's not really, it wasn't enough difference to hurt. And so we were able to kind of quantify that. Now that's a, that's a big thing with working with managers is when they ask you to do something like that, coming back with a quantifiable reason, it goes back to what we said in the first episode where you want to talk to the manager and repeat back what they say to you. And sometimes buy yourself some time by saying, let me get back to you on that. Let me run the numbers and, and see and things like that. So Yeah, I mean, and that can work well. I, I guess the way I try to look at these sort of things is sort of like a car accident. When you're reacting, you're already hit. 
more than likely you're going to collide with something. Whereas if you're seeing it up the road and you're seeing this guy swerve back and forth across lanes, uh, you take a different route. <laughs> it's one of those things that a little bit of uh, a little bit of preparation beforehand is a lot better. Like you know, I knew the knew the boss was a C programmer and because of the way I was the code I was having to deal with, I knew that he wouldn't like it. And so I already had my ducks in a row when an issue came up and I was like, Oh yeah, I was looking into that and then I looked at this and this seemed to Okay, that makes perfect sense. I, I didn't have the background of you already knowing right. that he was a C programmer. But yeah, when when you already know that well, if you that's don't... just that's just wise to have that in preparation. You wanna know the people you're working with and for because there's the social aspect of it and I know not everybody is as socially outgoing as us however knowing those backgrounds can make it easier you, know, you should have a pretty good idea of you know this this goes back to the whole thing of who is my customer okay the customer is not a placeholder it's not sales my customer is Brian in sales Exactly. There's specificity here, and the reason that, that you want to do that is because it makes it easier for you to visualize what you should do next. And it also makes it easier to pull an allegory out of your backside, like I do all the time. That's that's very true. When you are when you know your audience. Right. When, when the customer becomes a person and not just this abstract customer out there, yeah. That's that's another very important thing in in working with them because the whole idea here is is not the customer is always right and we have to do everything that they want and bow to their every whim but it's also not the customer is always wrong and we have to force them to do what we think is right it is they have a goal and our job is to help them reach that goal if we can if, if we can yeah and if not you you forward them on to someone else who can. Exactly. But you don't try to change their goal. And dealing with management and sales too, building trust with the management can be very crucial to this. And you can do this by just doing what you're asked to do. Even if you disagree with it, do what they ask. Um, and then once you've built that trust, then you can start talking to your manager and saying, you know, I don't, I don't know about this or things like that because they, they've got that trust in you. Right. And one thing you'll notice is this podcast title is you know, the complete developer podcast. But if you'll notice, there's a whole lot of sales stuff in here. Um, that's because that's where we think most developers are sort of incomplete. Uh, I, I can agree with that coming from the, the sales background that I have, the, the friends I have in the development community. And I do have quite a few, um, that's one area that most of them ask me questions about. Yeah, because they just, you know, we don't have it in our head. And honestly, having you know, appropriate sales skills can really, it, it makes it where you can get on projects that you find more interesting. You know, it's, it's not something that you absolutely have to love. It's just you have to understand it and be able to use it as a tool. A quick example, you guys. Will and I have known each other since college. Uh, however, after college, I moved out to East Tennessee and we didn't see each other for what, like four or five years. So we didn't see each other for about four years. And then I was back, I had moved back to Nashville and uh, we got together to hang out and stuff. And he was a completely different person 
than he'd been in college. And I said this to him, I'm like, dude, you're more outgoing and talking to people. And and he wasn't like that in college. Was I very used to be a moody you know, developer who didn't talk to people. So I asked him, like, dude, what, what happened? Like, you're you're married now you you know you're comfortable talking to strangers things like that and he said i learned some sales pretty much the the last thing when dealing with managers and the sales team and we've talked about how sales can really help us as developers but it's also knowing our boundaries our job is to code theirs is to manage or sell understanding their job and what it entails can help us do our job but when it comes down to it, we need to let them do their job and we need to do ours. Right. Well, and, and I think we need to draw a line, too, between interfering with their job and actually doing their, their job to some degree. Oh, that's... And I get that fixed. And so, like, we want to draw a little bit of a... Well, that's, a that's more of just being a good co-worker. Yeah. And, and I'll, where I'm working now, I got into a software pricing negotiation um, before I really realized I was in it. And I'd already saved the company a substantial amount of money and had to go, yeah, I kind of overstepped my bounds, but I saved you this much money. What I do about that? And so some, you know, sometimes the, and sometimes the lines are a little bit harder, um, you know, particularly like large corporate environments, you know, everybody's got a fixed role, you know, it's a cast system or it's a, uh, it's like a swarm of bees, really. You know, there's certain drones that do certain things. Yeah. And that's what they do, and that's it. And you get to a smaller company, sometimes the lines get really fuzzy. So finally, we're going to talk about direct customer access. And one thing with uh, direct customer access, uh, you know, you have to work very closely with a sales team. Like you got to kind of watch what you say. Like you don't, because you know we give salespeople a hard time about promising things that development can't deliver. Um, a lot of times. When you get a developer out there, especially if they're socially awkward and they're trying to talk past that, they'll offer things that sales can't deliver. Exactly. And, oh, man, I mean, you don't want to be in that position at all because, you know, you just gave away, oh, great, now we're, you know, this this is going to, we're, we're going to make next to nothing on this because, yeah, you knew what the input costs were, but you didn't know about all these other things. And, you know, you didn't give us any slack in the negotiation. They actually talked to some to under the break-even point. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that can, that can happen. Um, so, you know, you don't throw numbers out there. One thing one, that comes up is that you're not the user. Um, so when you're trying to explain things on behalf of the user, which you frequently have to do with clients, because some clients don't know who their customer is. In fact, it's a surprising percentage of the people that you're going to be dealing with. Don't also, Sometimes part of your job is to anticipate what the user wants. Um, example of this is, as I've been learning, I've taken the things that I've learned and I've turned them into little games for my nieces. And so I am anticipating what they will find fun to play. Now, I'm very, very childlike. I feel like I have a good idea on what's fun, but I'm not the end user. Yeah. I'm nothing like the end user. Well, I'm a bearded dude in his thirties and the end user for that are 
preschool girls. Yeah. So I try to get them flowery, fun stuff, and sometimes they like it, and sometimes they don't, and they well, let like, me know. It's like Christmas. I mean, sometimes you buy the kid a present, and they love it, and sometimes they play with a box. That is very true. And, and users are really, you know, especially, you know, developers and salespeople both have a tendency to think the user wants the toy when sometimes they just want to play with a box. Well, I mentioned earlier that I've been playing a lot of Kerbal lately, and they have a career mode, and they have a sandbox mode. And in Sandbox, you just have open access to everything. So sometimes I don't want to deal with the restrictions of, you know, working to gain different things. I just want to go in there, build a rocket, and shoot it off. Yeah, Yeah. and and they're aware that that's what some of their users want to do, whereas I've never, ever played in that mode. (laughs) I, I, I think I opened it up once, and I was like, oh, I have everything. There's nothing to do. And then I closed it and went back in the other mode. So I'm, I'm The main thing I use that mode for, to be honest, is so I don't waste money testing. Like, I'll test configurations in that mode, and then I'll go build what works in career mo- mode. Yeah, fair enough. The thing I like about that and what I'm getting at is they are leaving the possibilities open for the user to use their software as the user wants. Yeah. Of course, the other side of this is... is a lot of times, developers and salespeople both like to add features that really aren't necessarily needed because it makes them look good. And you have to you have to be a little bit careful mm-hmm. that you're not falling into this particular trap because it may it may look good during the sales window or even during the development product release window. But then later on, you know, you've built this feature and you find out that well, none of your users use it. And your your competition has gone past you, and they've built something that users actually want, and now you have a problem because you've got this boat anchor, and you got you'll you'll always have two or three users that want to use it, mm-hmm. and it's a huge maintenance point, and you want to get rid of it, and now you can't, and it's it's very easy for both sales and development to slip into this. It's that uh, resume driven development. Actually, I found a pretty cool blog that talks just about that, and. One thing I thought was really funny is uh, that it talks about how the there's a culture in development that uh, more features equal equals better promotions. I just thought that the two equal signs was, was kind of funny. Yeah, so clearly they're not JavaScript because um, <laughs> it would be three. But, you know, it, it's it's very easy to slip into that mindset. And, and you know, this, this brings us back around to the whole focus here is, is who is the customer because... If the customer is your boss and that's your only customer, then you have free reign to create all these other features and all the bloat and all that because you're going to get the value. But if you're correctly assessing the situation and realize that my boss is not the only customer, you know, that should not happen. Wrapping this all up, that's kind of what this boils down to is what you have to do is look at what does the customer, the user want? What are they going to use? And sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong in what that is. And that's when you get customer complaints. Sometimes the user or the customer wants to wants to use the product in a way that is not possible or not feasible. And that's when, as developers, we have to take on the role of explaining that without without being rude, basically. So with that, uh, Will, what do you have for us for uh, Tricks of the Trade this week? 
Well, today I've got a piece of software that I think we may have actually mentioned it in one of the health episodes where we were talking about sleep problems. Yeah. Um, it's Flux, and what Flux will do is actually turn down the blue component on your monitors, and it dims your screen, and it does it based on time of day, like you tell it where it is, or where you are, rather, and based on the time of sunset, it'll drop the blue out on your screen, and this will keep that blue color from causing you to reduce your melatonin production, which, of course, interferes with sleep. So that's, it's that's a neat actually little really good. I don't remember talking about that, but you might have mentioned it. I might have mentioned it, and it might be something that we cut out, too, so yeah. there's that. But anyway, it runs in the taskbar, and you can set it for kind of how bright and how dim you want it, you know, different times of day. So it actually, you can use it to make your monitors just dimmer in general if you if you want to do that. Like if you, I had, you know, I, when I had newer monitors, the whites were really painfully bright. And, you know, they've now burned in a little bit better and it's not, it's not so bad. Um, and so it was good for that. But it's, it's neat, you know, because you can tell when the sun's setting because you can watch the color temperature of your monitor fall. That's kind of cool, especially when you're like in your office, which is in the basement. Yeah. So it gives you an idea of what time of day it is. Right, because it's it's always the same down here. So it's it's a pretty good little tool, and I think um, you know, this along with some other things will help people get some sleep. If you have a question or comment for us, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed under Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is OMFG Hello by Argo Fox and is also licensed under Creative Commons and available on SoundCloud. For references, show notes, and to sign up to our email list, be sure and check out the website at www.completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.